disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so there you go. You see, you see this great commandment, this great commission that Jesus gives to the church. And we are called to follow it. And lastly, the verse that we come to, to, to see that forms this is First uh, John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Love, I want you to see, is rooted in Scripture. It's at the heart of our message deeply. So that's the first preliminary principle that we have to see. Secondly, the second preliminary principle that we have to embrace before we can understand and pursue the very mission we've been called to is that being loved comes first. Being loved comes first. It is so easy to lose sight of how we come to love in the first place. We love the very thing God has called us to do in his great commandment. Why? Because he first loved us. Look, the reason we refer to Christianity as good news, as a gospel, it is because the greatest need that we have, which is to be in relationship with God, was made possible by God himself and not by us. Let us never, ever, ever forget that our sin and rebellion to God is the very reason we couldn't be in relationship with God in the first place. Left in sin, we can do nothing about the relationship that our hearts was made for. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to remove our sin and bring us to himself. This he did by placing Jesus on Jesus, the penalty of sin, which is the death uh, that was ours deserved. This atoning act on the cross by Jesus is the most beautiful and perfect demonstration of love ever witnessed. It's love embodied. It's what Paul says, while we are sinners, Christ died for us. Thus, having paid for the penalty of our sin, he removes the barrier that was in place between us and God and then moves towards us, clothing us in his righteousness. He's the one that did this. He loved us. And in response to his love towards us, we love him. Being loved comes first. But thirdly, and this is very important for today, the third preliminary principle that we must understand is that love is a verb. Love is a verb. You will see on movies and songs and television, and you will be deceived to think that love is this emotional feel-good something, <laughs> characteristic or whatever. But when we're speaking of love biblically, we are speaking of love as a verb, as an action. The first and most important of God's command, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, to love our neighbor as ourselves, means that we are called to action. It doesn't mean that we are to sit idly by. And so for the remaining time, we're going to put this to practice, to understand how love is a verb and how the Bible calls us to action in loving God and loving neighbor. So let's take some time. To understand when we say be loved and love, what it means to love God and love neighbor. Okay, let's follow along with me. Now, there are three different categories I want you and I to understand when the Bible calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, this is far deeper. And f I, I mean, we, we literally every week we spend time talking about what it means to love God. But these are three basic categories for you to understand what it means to love God. Action points, okay? So three. First, to love God is to know 
God. To love God is to know God. Now, do you believe in love at first sight? Do you believe it? That's a debate that's often passed around. I don't. Oh, sure, there might be crazy infatuation or lust for someone, but love? No, love never comes at first sight because love requires knowledge. Love requires knowledge, and it's the same with God. We don't magically love God because God requires us to do it. We love God because he has made himself known. In revealing himself to us, we then recognize him as the one our hearts were made for. If we do not know God, we cannot love God. And simply speaking, God has revealed himself. He has made himself known in two primary ways. Through his creation and through the scriptures. Theologians call this general revelation and special revelation. Let me just speak to this very briefly about how we can know God. First, through the creation. Consider the world that we live in. The whites on the roofs. The squirrel that picks up the nut in your backyard. The universe that over, it, it forms the roof that we look up to. Consider these things. Consider the complexities of these realities. And then consider the one who has made them. The world will tell you that something came from nothing. <laughs> Logically speaking, this is not possible. Something cannot come from nothing. What you see, what you feel, what you taste, what you know, comes from God. And God has made himself known through these realities. It is illogical to think that there is no God. You realize that, right? Because something has never come from nothing. God has made himself known simply through the creation. But my friends, we can know this God, and we can know this God from a, wow, this God is much bigger than me. But this God can't really be loved from these things. No, we have to see a special revelation of this God. And this is what we have through God's word. You know, left to ourselves, we would be ignorant of who the true God is and what it is he has done. We could assume there is a God, like Deus. We could say there's a God, but we don't know who this God is. But the scriptures reveal to us who God is. Not only who his character is, but what it is he has done. So when we come into worship each and every week, you will hear me say these same phrases. We come to worship God for who he is and what it is he has done. This is what the scriptures reveal to us. It reveals to us the character of God and the actions of God. And when we study the scriptures, we start to get a picture of what this God is like. And when we begin to see who he is, and what it is he's done. We start to be amazed. We stand in amazement of who God is. I mean, we've done that very thing today. We've confessed our sins and then we've come and be like, I don't know why you love me. I don't know why you have given me such grace and mercy, but you have. And I simply stand amazed. We're not going to love God if we don't know God. 
And because God has made himself known, not only through creation, but through scriptures, we can know God. So loving God means we know God. Study God's word. Study your science books. Learn how this world works. The more we study it, the more we are amazed at who God is. Don't neglect the study of God. Don't neglect the study of this world. These things reveal who our God is. This is what it means to love God. It means to know God. But secondly, God can reveal himself to us and we can respond. And so secondly, the second aspect of loving God that I want to give to you is that we worship God. Indeed, in response to the knowledge of God from creation and scripture, we can't help but to worship him. And if you think about worship at its core, it is at its core ascribing worth to something. I mean, listening closely to the word worship, you can hear what it means if you slow it down. Worth-ship. It's ascribing worth and meaning to something. And so when we see what God has done in creation and seeing what God has done in salvation, we ascribe to him the worthiness, the worth that is due unto his name. You realize that humans worship. They ascribe worth to something. I'll never forget a man in this church said, every dollar that you spend on something, you are ascribing worth to that. And so, so we are worship beings. The atheist on the corner, the, the, the Muslim in Saudi Arabia, they're worshiping something. And the question becomes, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures? This is what love of God means. It's, it's to ascribe him worth, to, to form our lives around him, him being the one that gets the glory, him being the one that we center our lives around. This is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. This is worship. This is worship. And worship goes beyond just the singing of songs and hymns. It's certainly that. It's centering our whole lives around who God is. Practically speaking, there's two ways that I want you to understand worship. There's two ways. We worship God publicly. Of course, we do this publicly each and every Sunday. We come to worship God, who he is, and what it is he has done. And it is right and it is good that we do this. When you come on Sunday mornings, are you coming prepared to consider our great and glorious God? If not, what is holding you back? You know, the reluctance that many have to attending corporate worship oftentimes reveals what it is you're worshiping. And so if you're in your bed early in the morning, you're like, it's just, I'm just tired. What are you really worshiping? And you skip church. What are you really worshiping? Is your life being centered around him? Because God's word calls us to come together to worship him publicly. But we don't just worship God publicly. We worship God privately. You know, this is the every day, every step that we take. When we wake, worshiping God is what we do. You know, when we wake up, the world hits us in the face. Our senses are, are sparked. And yet we have evidence in these senses that God is a good and great creator. And then if we open up the scriptures, we are inundated with the evidence of our great God working in this time and world in 
special ways? And then do we take our time in response to what we see in creation and in the word to take time to worship God, to form our lives around him in the private of our own life? As a church, we, we want each and every one of us to form our lives around the worship of God. On the back table, you will see we have a new, what we call, community Bible reading. And it's a, it's a tool that we have given to each and every one of you in the church to help you understand what it means to form your life around this great and good God. It's simply a tool. It's not a requirement. But how in the world do you worship God privately? Well, this tool will help you. And, it's, and it is helpful. Some of us just need prompts. And that's what this gives us. Now, what I love about our new community Bible reading is that not only does it help us privately, but it also helps us publicly. We've got two new sections that are included in this that, that help us to do it together publicly. So there's a section on how to, to, to read scripture together, but also how to prepare yourself for public worship. It's a beautiful tool. And, and after this service, I want to commend you to grab it, to take it, that you might be moved to worship privately because this is what it means to love God. So we love God by knowing him. We love God by worshiping him. Lastly, we love God by trusting him. You know what Hebrews eleven six says? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without trust, it is impossible to please God. Now, in our mind, what we think is, oh, our obedience, our obedience is what pleases God. No. Our obedience is not what pleases God. What is it? It's our faith. And how in the world does our faith become embodied? We trust God's ways. Obedience is not something that you do in your own strength to try to earn it. Obedience is always rooted in our trust of who God is and how he has called us to live. Obedience and trust are never, ever to be separated. Trust is at the foundation of our obedience. So when we refuse the things of this world, whatever it might be, you can go down the Ten Commandments, and when we refuse, let's just say this, to not kill our neighbor, okay? We are trusting that God's word is what tells us to not do this. And I'm not going to kill my neighbor. That's right. I'm not going to kill my neighbor today. It's our trust in God's word. But that could be applied. It's a joke. I know none of you guys are killing anyone, thankfully. I know that. Jasper, I don't know. But I want you to know this. To love God means to trust him. And one of the ways we know that we are trusting him is if we are obeying him. But obeying doesn't precede trust, just like love doesn't precede being loved. We love because he first loved us. And why wouldn't we trust him? Consider our God, who he is, and what it is he has done for us. He is a God whom we can trust. So when he tells us to worship him, we worship him, not because we have to, but because we get to. What a God. I love our God, who he is, and what it is he has done for us. This is what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To know him, to worship him, and to trust him.
So when we say be loved and love, this is what we mean. Yes, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it means more than just that, because love is an action. And love requires us to love God. But thirdly, we're, or lastly, we are called to love our neighbor. Love our neighbor. I want to give you guys three different categories, just like the first one, for the ways that we can love our neighbor. And once again, this is, I'm covering this in five minutes. You know, the love of neighbor in five minutes, boom, you know everything it is about that, right? No, it's just not possible. But I want to give you categories for how we think about loving our neighbor. First, when the Bible talks about the practice of loving neighbor, it's calling us to love one another. If you see the New Testament, one of the things that the New Testament is calling us to do is calling us to love one another in the church, the brothers and sisters in the church. It is so vitally important that we do this together. What does Jesus say about the world and, 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 and knowing his love? They will know you by your love. And if the church cannot love one another, how in the world does anyone who's not a part of the church know what, what's in the church? So we've got to love one another. And love requires us to trust. Love requires us to move into the needs that we see of one another and to meet them. And this is not easy. Because people in the church, if you don't know this, bite. And they hurt. Loving one another in the church is not easy. People have different opinions. People are nasty to one another. I mean, I've experienced this. But we are called to move into that. At the heart of the church, it's not so much um, everyone being so nice to one another. I think one of the ways that we can really see loving one another, there's two ways. Two primary ways. When we think about what it means to love one another, especially within the church and outside of it too, but in the church, there are two characteristics. Forgiveness, forgiveness, and repentance. The church should be characterized by a willingness to forgive. That when we are wronged, which we will be, that we don't hold it against our brother or sister. Secondly, repentance. The church should be characterized by people who are saying, you know what? I did do wrong. And I'm sorry. The church should be a place where repentance and forgiveness is at the heart of the church of its day-to-day -day experience, repentance and forgiveness. Loving, loving one another, especially within the church, should be categorized in those ways. Secondly, the second way I think we can love our neighbors is by loving our children. Loving our children. If love is a process of meeting needs, which I certainly would say it is, that, especially when you're talking about love of neighbor, then we must acknowledge the most vulnerable in our population. And the most vulnerable people in our population are the children. When my children were born, they had needs, and they were needs that they could not meet in and of themselves. So we, and people in general, swing in to meet those needs. Thanks be to God that it takes place even outside the church. But as a church, we should be mindful of loving our children, of creating ministries like we have downstairs that cultivate in them a knowledge of God and what it means to worship him and to trust him. We, we, we spend time thinking about the ways that we 
educate our children from, from the very moment they're, they're born to the time when they die. Children are so vitally uh, needy and vulnerable, and so we swing in to meet them. As a church, it is so vitally important that we fight for the rights of those children, for the unborn and for the born. We are to be good stewards of the children in our midst. This is what it means to love our neighbor. Loving the children. Jesus said, suffer the little children. Let them come to me. We do the same. Lastly, we are called not only to love one another, to love our children, but to love our neighbor. Luke 10, which we read earlier today, is a story about a man, a lawyer, a Jewish lawyer, comes to Jesus, and he's trying to justify himself, and you can recall the interaction that they had. But following that interaction that we, we read this morning, do you know what the lawyer said to Jesus? He says, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells him the parable of the good Samaritan. And, and the, the truth of that story is that your neighbor is anyone that you come into contact with. You, re you realize that. And so anyone that you come into contact with is, in fact, your neighbor. When I lived in Orlando, Kimberly and I lived in a townhome, and the townhome um, had thin walls, very thin walls. And I'll let your imagination go where you can think it would be. We lived next door to a lovely couple. They loved one another and loved one another well. Um, and so the call to love one's neighbor, especially in being um, given to, to things that you weren't being given, supposed to be given to, was very difficult. And it, I, I remember sitting there and being convicted of loving my neighbor and going, you know what, I would actually rather go to North Korea right now than go and talk to my neighbor and to get to know them and to meet them and to love them, because it's very awkward. And I was like, but there's something wrong about that. Why would it be easier for me to go to a place where I, I, I would, might be even under great threat than to walk next door to my neighbor? It's because in that moment, it was far more riskier to go and, and, and meet with them. And so convicted by this love of neighbor, I was like, dang it, I got to go talk to him. And so we did. And we said, hey. We can hear everything. You know that, right? <laughs> and I thought it was going to be really awkward, but then we became friends, like genuine friends. We would hang out in the afternoons together. Our kids, we'd play with their daughter. We would, our dogs would play together, and we ended up really enjoying each other. When I think about the church, I think the church has lost sight of the love of neighbor just in a simple form like that. That when we talk about love of neighbor, it's simply those that you come into contact with. So it is, in fact, the neighbor that lives next door to you. So when you are called to move in to love your neighbor, how are you to think about it? Here's a couple things. And it, it coincides with the love of God. Know your neighbor. Do you know your neighbors? Like, do you know their names? Do you know... They're children. Do you know where they work? Knowing your neighbor is the beginning of loving your neighbor. Each and every one of us, being made in the image of God, has needs. We have emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual needs. 
And when we talk about loving your neighbor, we're talking about moving into these emotional, physical, and spiritual needs. Now, your neighbor might not have physical needs. They might not. So it's not your call to love them. But I guarantee you, they might have emotional needs that you have the ability to meet. I mean, I personally would love to know that my neighbors know me, and they know when I leave and when I come, and they can look out for me. I have emotional needs, too, as a neighbor, and I want my neighbors to love me, and they want you to love them. And as Christians, we are called to love them by moving into, the, into their lives simply by getting to know them. Secondly, loving your neighbor by enjoying them. I grew up, some of you know this, I grew up in South Florida. And South Florida is, I call the southernmost borough of New York. Because um, across the street from me lived a woman named Roberta Rosenthal. And Roberta was, she was a tough, she was a tough woman. So as a kid, she had this field next door to us, next door to her house that she bought just so that no one would live next to her. And she sodded it. And as a kid loving sports, I was like, perfect football field. But we couldn't play on that football field until we got to know her. And then when we got to know her, she said, you can play on it, but you got to ask me first. I'm like, it's a perfectly good field. We can play on it. But in getting to know her, we let her in. But she was tough to love. She would walk around with her Virginia Slims all the time, walking a dog. Hello, Danny. How are you? And I'm like, Ugh. And she would say this to me, and it would always make me uncomfortable. Danny, you know I love you. As a 12-year-old boy, looking at, a, <laughs> looking at, a, at a, the, this sweet Jewish woman wearing... Um, I don't even know what it's called, but it's just, just a weird outfit. I was definitely creeped out by it. And I, I don't think I ever said it, but you know what happened? And just getting to know her and being around her and talking to her while she's walking her dog and smoking her Virginia Slims, I began to enjoy her. You might not enjoy your neighbors right now, but if you get to know them, then you get to enjoy them. And when you get to enjoy them, then you're really loving them. So when you throw a party at your house, invite your neighbors. Let them be a part of the joy that this party represents. Your neighbors need to have joy too. And they need to know that they're enjoyed. It's part of their emotional needs. Lastly, love your neighbor by meeting their needs. Meet their needs. You might not always have access to the needs in their life. But you're called as a Christian to meet their needs, to love them. Because this is what love means. It's a process of meeting needs. So when there is spiritual needs that you are able to meet, meet them. Be prepared for the hope that is within you and share it with them. Be uh, a place where they can laugh and share their stories. Be a place they can trust uh, and you can trust them. Love your neighbor. Meet their needs. If you've ever read anything about the early Christian church, you know that the early Christian church was under constant persecution and challenges. On top of that, they were a very small group of people in a very small part of the world, Israel. Yet that small group of persecuted people began to love their neighbors well meeting their needs, 
And one of the ways that they did this is they shared the hope that was within them, that Christ had come, Christ had died, Christ had risen, and Christ, in fact, will come again. And this message of hope that they shared with the world began slowly but surely in the face of persecution, in the face of great trials and tribulation, began to seep its way into every corner, in every facet of life. And yet none of these people got to see what it became. They just faithfully pursued their why. And what was their why? It's the same why of our church. To be loved and to love. Central hope. We are going to face trials and tribulations in the church and outside the church. But if we can know our why, we can withstand it just like the early church. And generations from now, people will look back, maybe not even on us, but they'll say they knew their why. And the influence they had has permeated to me. And I'm thankful for that. Let us hold truth to our why. To be loved by God. To be loved by one another. To love God and to love others. Let me pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have not left us without a mission. No, indeed, you have given us a mission and a call. And this mission is what roots us deep and enables us to withstand the trials and the tribulations that we, in fact, will face and do face. And so, Lord, I ask that this why would be ever before us, that would be, we would constantly and increasingly be understanding it and knowing it, that generations from now, people will say, that church knew their why, and I'm thankful because I know my why now too. So Lord, we ask that you would continue to, 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 to um, keep us uh, in light of this uh, truth, to be loved by you, and to love you and love our neighbor.